I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Phoebe Ganeshanathan, also known as Suki, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And today our show is returning to two classic topics that we've discussed a few times, class and mass incarceration. As we edge closer to the 2024 election, it's clear that one issue on everyone's mind is income inequality and precarity. Um, it's just going to be, it's part of our lives now, maybe more than ever before, or at least more consciously than ever before. It is horrifying. Um, and the evidence of it is all around us in ways that are almost too cartoonish to be believed. Lately, I kind of can't tear myself away from listening to the radio, uh, the coverage of the Trump case in New York and the multiple instances of alleged fraud we're hearing about, which is, as far as I can tell, like fraud committed to create the appearance of wealth, basically to tell a story about being rich, which makes me wonder if money is a costume some people just get to put on, like who has access to that? And on the flip side of that coin, who is living in limbo and precarity and who gets to tell that story? Or maybe, as we'll discuss in this episode, the question should be who gets to edit that story. This week, Coffee House published an exciting new anthology on class, American Precariat, Parables of Exclusion. The book features a number of writers uh, we admire, including a couple former guests of the show, uh, Cal Kalia Yang and Lacey M. Johnson. And even more amazingly, it was edited by 12 incarcerated writers. Uh, and those writers are connected to the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, uh, of which I am a member of the board. And today's show, we're going to talk about this project and what it means for incarcerated editors to curate stories about class. And to discuss this, we're thrilled to be joined by a writer I admire hugely and also one of the book's editors, Zeke Caliguri. Zeke is a writer from South Minneapolis and author of This Is Where I Am, published by University of Minnesota Press. He is co-founder of the Stillwater Writers Collective, the first of its kind in the country. 
And his work has been featured in Lit Hub, Pen America, and it's also anthologized in Prison Noir, edited by Joyce Carol Oates, as well as The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. He is directly impacted by over two decades of incarceration and is currently helping to build the re-enfranchised coalition, empowering system-impacted people and reinvesting in the humanization of those still stuck within the captivity business. Zeke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. I want to rewind a little bit so our listeners can hear about the long road to this book. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start as a writer via the Stillwater Writers Collective and later with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop? Sure. Um, I really just got my my start as a reader, as an incarcerated reader. So it was just a big thing is that my relationship to, to books and to just language um, had always made me want to be able to write the books that impacted my life in the same way uh, I w- sort of began sort of as my own uh, uh, you know writing my own stories and trying to put together my own life and um, I uh, ended up running into uh, like a cohort of of people when I was incarcerated at Stillwater that were also writers or were artists and you know a big thing a big draw that I always tell folks is that when you're in those sort of places the artists tend to find each other. There can be a thousand people, but the artists tend to find each other. And and that was really what the case was. And any time I was anywhere, you always ended up finding other people who were working on things, creatives. And, you know, as a result, uh, we also realized that there wasn't going to be support coming from outside of the facilities. And so we had sort of all kind of gotten together under the idea that we needed each other as a community for whatever that meant, and just in a sense so that it could grow. Um, one particular uh, really good friend of mine, C. Fausto Cabrera, and I had always, so we had a real kind of complicated artist relationship. Um, he was a phenomenal, uh, you know, with all sorts of different mediums, paint and pastels, and he was also a phenomenal writer. I had this project that I wanted to write. I was writing my memoir at the time, and I really, uh, I was really afraid that they would do something to stop it. They would do something to prevent it from getting out there. And so we had these sort of ideas and like, how are we going to build sort of some collective power? There's really only so much you can in there. But it was about trying to like create, um, you know, a, a collective of, of, of artists and creatives that would then um, be able to somehow help each other, regardless of what it was. We just knew that we didn't have the outside support. And so we built what we called the Stillwater Writers Collective, which was just the collective of us. We ran it. Um, we, we did everything within it, took care of each other. Fortunately, what ended up happening inevitably was uh, Jen Bowen comes into the facility. Jen Bowen um, had decided she wanted to, to teach some writing classes, and she did it at one of the other facilities. And because we had what we had, so when she started teaching at Stillwater started bringing other folks. It was just this sort of like natural relationship that just took over. And essentially, they came to us and said, um, "What do you guys, as a community, want, need as a as a as a writing community?" And I mean, these are all people that had been doing um, other things in that same realm for many years, just not within um, you know carceral institutions, and so. It, it became kind of this idea of like, well, we would we would love some writing classes. We would love you know a mentorship program, and we would love uh, to be able to host readings and do things. And like, 
we've been able to do those things and they brought all of the the right people you know that was really the essentially what the a lot of the core was was that jen went and found wonderful people who were also wonderful writers and very talented and understood you know i guess the the landscape of it and then what it kind of became was these two communities one outside of uh, the prison and then the prison communities itself kind of growing up together alongside of each other in these two different tracks. And so that's really what brings us to question. that. Yeah. Oh, no, I was sorry. just going to say, and that's really what brings us to how the project becomes and how this, you know, we have a community in which to be able to create something like this. So you write a foreword to this uh, collection and you talked about like the lack of infrastructure for writing or creating art, you know, inside these prisons. Um, and you talk about computer labs that have been proposed and set up by members of your community. And it made me think, like, just in a practical sense, what did your writing day look like when you were incarcerated? Where did you work? What did you work on? What hours did you have to work? What was your physical environment like? That's a good question. Well, I was locked up for 22 years, so I had a lot of changes. It was a really about adaptation. Um I, I've worked in jobs. I worked as a higher ed clerk. I worked as an editor of one of the newspapers in one of the facilities. I worked on the yard crew for a long time. Most of my practice would start very early. So I would get up prior to breakfast, prior to counts, any of those early things that you have to get out and switch up. And I spend time with, with the word. And sometimes that's really just reading. Sometimes it's writing. You know, So uh, most of my day, and even as a free person, most of, or mostly free person, most of my practice starts in the morning. If I can start with like some blocks of language, I can get something in my mind that's moving without any of the real sort of outside interference. You're not hearing the voices or things that are barking out of a screen. Um, that's usually how that started, right? And if you were fortunate enough, I would get some computer time. So like, I think the last job I worked in the health service unit um, at Fairbolt, and that meant you dealt with a lot of people that either had long-term health care issues that were not going to leave or were just going recovering from different surgeries. So I would spend my day usually reading and writing, and then when I could get a chunk of time to write to an hour to three hours on a computer, then I would go and transcribe as much as I could. In the early days, I, I took jobs intentionally so that I could go type in a computer lab, you also had to build relationships so folks would. I mean, early on, it was really difficult because they didn't they didn't support the the prison writing workshop. They didn't really care that you were in these classes necessarily. So you had to be in higher ed to be able to use the computer lab. You're writing by hand yes. and then taking it to a computer lab and then typing it in. Basically. Yes. Yes. Okay. Or on a real and typewriter when you say, or on I, an actual uh, typewriter. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but. You know, we actually would keep a typewriter. It's just much more difficult, and it's harder to keep a file. So, you know, we but we definitely there are guys that I do write it. on a typewriter. Yeah. And this yeah. was actually what I was going to ask you about because I'm aware that, for example, were an incarcerated writer to be transferred from one facility to the other, how like what ability to keep files is there? Like how how does a writer keep track of their own work under these circumstances? Is that possible? Well, it is now a little, little more. 
you do not get nearly as much computer time as you would like. So that's the, the thing. Sometimes you might get a couple hours a week. Sometimes you might get more. You move from facility to facility. Each facility has different access. So when I left initially, I had left Stillwater in 2013. I had written uh, my book. I had most of this manuscript done, and I was working through the process of editing it. We didn't have like any sort of networked file system. They have since changed it. So now if you do leave, your stuff is still saved on your file. So if you go to another facility, it'll still be there. When I left, it did, it was not that way yet. And so, I mean, we went through a really, like, grueling process of uh, I would I would make edits. I would send it to a, a, a woman who was a close personal friend. Shout out to Myrna. Um, and she would... Uh, hand or it would transcribe them send a digital copy so she would transcribe from an actual hard copy send the digital copy to my editor at u of m press and then they would mark that they would print that out do a whole bunch of markups just like the olden days send it to me and we went through that process and i would circle things maybe make small things on the page but then also have maybe a secondary page so we had to go through that process several times you know just because we couldn't save the manuscript you know, digitally on my end. So we had to kind of do it through other folks in different channels. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And so the logistics of all of this, especially collaborating with anyone else, is um, so much work. And so putting this project together... Uh, also seems like it just an enormous feat. I mean, beyond it being, I mean, it's just, it's a fabulous book because it's just such an interesting read. Um, so I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about um, how, how you all got to this project. Um, you know, how did you decide, did you decide you wanted to edit an anthology or was it um, the anthology is about class or, or was there a sort of a prevailing feeling that you wanted to say something on this topic, which, which came first and then how did, how did this all come together? Well, I think there are several pieces that sort of lend to it initially. Um, the first part was there was sort of this the kind of the 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 fellowship culture and the 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 way funding works is that we normally will get boxed out of anything. And so, as a community that has been sending our work to to journals and looking for validation from you know the mainstream publishing world for many many years. Uh, what we noticed was that even when they were doing collections or there were calls for incarcerated work or incarcerated writers to apply for things, that we wouldn't receive nearly as uh, much consideration. And there were people that were breaking through and people did break through in little bits, but as far as uh, being eligible for some of these, they would have fellowships. These fellowships would surface about you know, about justice or about the carceral system, and then they would give most of these fellowships to free people or people that had been, versus like our community that knew and understood how relevant our community was becoming, right? And we were, you know, you had a bunch of guys and 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 people in, in, in Shakopee as well, like in our facilities that were building their own careers, but but weren't getting the same consideration for these fellowships. So that was one element of it. The second element was is that we had been editing in different cohorts, either through the Stillwater Writers Collective, the Fairbolt Writers Collective, Shakopee Writers Collective, uh, throughout the system 
our own anthologies, right? So every year, uh, the MPWW students would produce an anthology. So there were groups that had, you know, built were building their you know, sort of editing chops through this process, and that moved around a few times. You had some people that did it several different times, but either way, like it was definitely something that was already within our wheelhouse. It was something that we wanted to do too. Um, and I think the third element of it was while this project may have begun before the pandemic, I think what the pandemic did was definitely start to sort of hard cut some of the lines around, around the ideas of class and about the ideas of insecure parts of our society, right? We knew how insecure we had always been, but now you're starting to see other folks that are like, they're recognizing it as it is happening in real time. And to us, I think we we understood that this might be a moment where we are able to sort of like shed some light on this or create some illumination from at least the little cellar that we were coming from. And I just want to briefly say here for our listeners who might not know, uh, Zeke and I are both uh, familiar with these names, but Shakopee is a women's prison in the state of Minnesota. Faribault is another facility and Stillwater is another facility. So some of these names that we're tossing around are, are referencing those. Um, sorry, wait, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, you know, the interesting thing about this book is that it's, this is not a book that is j- just writing by incarcerated or formerly incarcerated writers. This has writer writers in it, you know, uh, and some very famous ones. And that part is that, that it's incarcerated writers who have edited and sort of put the book together. So there are writers like uh, Chiesi Lehman, Valeria Luiselli, and Steve Almond. Um, there are emerging writers in here, too. So how did you go about soliciting uh, work for this book? And um, what notes were you trying to make sure that you hit? Well, that was actually kind of one of the funner parts of the whole process. Um, we had agreed that we did want to solicit folks. And so we we had a kind of an open an open run. Everybody just start throwing your 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 dream teams out there. And it was, we, we sat in groups because that we had two different cohorts originally. You had one at Stillwater and Fairboat. So you can imagine all of you who out there who have edited uh, anthologies or collections before, how difficult, you know, some of those decisions could be having other folks in it and having nine to 11 other people somehow making comments on it and having their own opinions. So essentially we just threw as many folks out there as we could possibly think of that we may have want, you know, people we had read. It was it was really a preliminary kind of like, let's see what sticks. On top of it, we also agreed amongst the group that we wanted there to be an open submission because for one, um, there is something, I guess, you know, that feels a little privileged about like, you know, now we're going to sit and we're going to sort of cultivate this listing of folks without allowing some room for people to contribute to this, right? Like we needed this to be, um, we needed this to have as much like sort of freedom in it as possible outside of just knowing that there were people that we wanted to. So we went through a lot of, and it was a lot of, we asked a lot of people, right? I think, I think we were, we were all trying to be sort of careful that these are folks that that write with sort of insecure populations in mind, you know, insecure personal experiences. And and so we just tried to keep to those. And I think like we were we were while wanting to make sure that we cut it, we, we hit on a couple of things, making sure that you understood uh, that we had something in there 
um, that speaks to sort of the fragility of our mental health care system, some other elements, uh, maybe things, certainly things around poverty, right, and certain things around uh, the financial institutions that exist. But for the most part, we were kind of open-minded and wanted to see what people brought to us, right? So we were, I mean, I think we, it, it turned out to be like just a wonderful collection of of people, but then also the work that came from it too fit very well into what it was we were looking for. Because with an anthology, I mean, I think most of everybody knows too, is that you can drive it and you can maybe direct it a little bit, but like you still have to, from a sense too, like step away and allow the work to be the work, right? You have to allow the artist to be to present their art too. So, and that's what, so that was pretty much it. We did an open call through poets and writers. We, you know, we took as many submissions as we could possibly take. And we, we waited on some of these, these solicitations to return to. And fortunately, uh, the people that came back were, you know, in some cases very reputable. And in other cases, were just writing some really beautiful things sort of behind the scenes that we were fortunate enough to be able to pull out. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Zeke, could you read us an excerpt from the foreword to the anthology? Yeah, certainly. So essentially, I'm reading from the foreword that I wrote for American Precariat. Uh, we were very fortunate with Eula Biss agreed to, to write the introduction, and so... Um, you have me and then you have you have her and it's you know and so essentially what i'm getting in is just trying to like make create some context for uh what you know and why it's important that uh, a writer's collective from an incarcerated writer's collective uh would be a viable voice to be able to edit a compilation about class or insecurity in 2023 does your life matter does your art matter? I hope so. I know that I could never rely on an ever-constricting prison system at a pivot point of mass incarceration to answer these questions for me. In so many ways, prisons are secrets hidden from the rest of the world. Society has always hidden its most disturbing transgressions. Yet culture still matters in these hidden spaces. We, the incarcerated, are the caretakers of it. If a prison is old enough, it remembers the prisoners that quarried the granite for its walls or laid the bricks for its cell blocks that we have spent a century inhabiting. The incarcerated have always been more expendable than the buildings that house us, but our ideas echo long after we have left our initial scratch into old slabs of inmate-laid concrete or scribbled on the walls of holding tanks. The state may maintain the institutions, but we nurture the culture always. We the artists, students, musicians, and writers. Prison writing communities are proof of a force stronger than single unread poems or stories. They are proof that there are more of us coming. There is a great significance to a panel of incarcerated writing, writers editing an anthology on the precarious class in 2023. We, the editors, are the same population who have been tweaking and revising our work so that our voices might gain acceptance into the journals and anthologies we've hoped would validate our efforts. We are trying to make greater sense of our place in the larger, broader world. 
It matters that this is a volume edited by the imprisoned because the history of class hasn't always been written by the powerful, but they have always been its editors. We are a group of human beings who sought out community to consolidate the power of our own work. We, the incarcerated, are editing this most recent chapter on class. As a group, we've come to understand or have tried to understand power and class distinctions through the ways we have, as an incarcerated community, categorized and divided ourselves. Incarceration is the extension of the same mechanisms and power and marginalization that black, brown, queer, and impoverished human beings have been manipulated and oppressed by through the institutions of our society. We are the depository of that pipeline. So just as the largest of corporations believe they could drop sewage into nearby rivers or bury our human footprint in a landfill or in a plastic swirl in the oceans without the earth spitting its truth back at all of us, we dispose of human problems into the chasm of the penal system without confronting the socioeconomic circumstances that created the problems in the first place. The power dimensions that are at once manipulative, deceptive, and plain old mean are also cowardly and speak to the fragility of the human place in the ecosystem. We have felt for so long, and our social and economic systems support the belief that human beings must control each other to control the world. As a broader, new American society in the wake of a global pandemic, we've now felt the soft incarceration of being sequestered, a fear of being trapped, and a fear of catching an invisible sickness with uncertain consequences. The trapped analogy is obvious. The pathologies in all forms, viral, bacterial, psychosociological, well, we've been passing them back and forth unknowingly for generations until we are too sick to know any better. We watched from inside and out as a knee pushed on a neck and the stop clock emergency of time ran out. And then like so often in our history, we have watched the fire and the rage. We bite down because we know that the violence of taking a person's time and all their hope can't be represented in a short video clip on TV or even elicit the flash or rage such violent taking should. During the course of this project, our editorial board went through two cohorts. The first, pre-pandemic, totaled 12 individual editors in three separate facilities, while the second consisted of a much smaller concentration of editors. COVID-19 did just what time in these places does, change and complicate things further. There were expected and unexpected transfers, incongruent security priorities, and lockdowns that made it impossible for our cohorts to meet. So we had to depend on individual institutions to relay memos and manuscripts. And institutions had never been known for an ability to make adjustments to benefit the humanity of their inhabitants. In the pandemic, prison reverted to the answer they knew best, tightened security. Our project went from finding its purpose and personality to being frozen indefinitely. And that continued well beyond when the rest of the world started to open and venture out again. Significant effort was made to keep up momentum, but it was extremely difficult to keep 12 humans, all separated in different carceral compartments, connected to each other and to a changing outside world. When we did come back to this work, we were without members from both cohorts and access to the entire group from Stillwater was cut off. We were left with the cohort from Fairboat, with participation from a couple of transferred editors in an entirely different facility in Moose Lake, and by that time, the entire world had transformed. 
editing a book about class looked, felt, and tasted exponentially different. We are now a community that has grown up inside and out with so many individual careers and successes. There is a pathway for young artists who believe in their work and in their ability to live a creative life in and outside of prison cells. We are also a community that is hyper aware of its own precarity. We're here curating, editing, and presenting a series of essays edited by 12 complicated, unique human writers at different stages of complex lives and incarcerations with different personal goals and philosophies of the world, working in a community and confronting and arguing over the invisible and not so invisible lines that shouldn't mean anything, but too often draw the borders around what we are all afforded in this lifetime. As an editorial board, we now represent 12 different voices split between three prisons. We are made up of African-American, Kenyan-born, Hmong, not unexpectedly white males, unfortunately, without women because of the structure of prison, except the constant, steady, and realistic voice of Jen Bowen, who made sure it didn't all blow up. There were plenty of voices missing from our tables, as there are too many voices missing from any table when we discuss class in America. Zeke, thank you so much. Um, it's such a great introduction to just a really outstanding volume. Um, and I'm really struck by the line. I just wandered around my house thinking about this. It matters that this is a volume edited by the imprisoned because the history of class hasn't always been written by the powerful, but they have always been its editors. Um, we referred to this a little bit earlier, but I want to talk about how that idea influences the book structure because a classic anthology structure kind of keeps the editor less visible, ex except maybe with a foreword. But before reading this book, I had never really thought about what that presumes or implies about the editor's power and their place in the world. And there's kind of this notion that tasteful editing is maybe supposed to be invisible. And you explode all this really beautifully by including a conversation among the editors um, after each piece. So we get a sense of how the editors read the essays and think about them and the different editors and, and why they matter to you. And I don't know that I've seen anything like that from any other group before, anything that kind of acknowledges the power of editing in this way in conversation with the work that's being edited. And I wonder if you can talk about how you decided to include those conversations in the book, which I think make it really distinctive. Okay. I mean, a lot of it came from just by the fact that a lot of our choices had been taken from us just in general. We had to, we had to consolidate down to a smaller group because, for one, the interactions between both prisons had sort of been shut off just simply because of pandemic. So even as we're coming off, uh, coming out of what maybe the public would be looking at was uh, the harshest period of, of the pandemic, we were still under some really you know, sort of harsh limitations in the facilities, and we were still able to work at Fairbolt. And so we had these Friday mornings, it may have been every other week or whatnot, um, where then we had to come back together and decide, all right, what is this project? What are the pieces? What are those things? And so I think a lot of it was that we were coming back to it and getting to know the project again, also getting to know each other. We're going a couple of years where we weren't able to really interact with each other in the way unless we were in the same units. And so there were a lot of like really, really profound conversations in there because I, I mean, I think and I don't know how it was for everybody who had to experience these. But when you get back and you're coming back to see each other now, all of a sudden we have to look at each other and have a conversation about um, 
all right, what, is, what do all these themes mean now that the world has seen what it has seen and what we now understand about not only like the global pandemic, but then also with uh, the, you know, incredible uprisings in the cities, you know, and this is the city where I grew up in. So it's a lot of stuff. I think we were all sort of dealing with our own adaptations and it was really hard for this project not to have a part of that voice and the conversations became this idea that uh not like i mean truthfully like if you think about the way like writing and how important like the way you read and those sort of reading groups impacts the way the human beings who read it are right it's the way language is we've always been a reading and writing culture and it was sort of like at this point it was it was the way we could make sense of things communally right or as a as a collective versus if you're just in if you're just editing something individually a lot of that stuff and a lot of those dialogues go on in your own brain we really literally had them and we were all very thirsty to be able to be around each other be able to talk to each other because that was something that was missing throughout was this this idea to be able to sort of fellowship and be able to like work through these things too okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back So let's talk about some of the essays individually. Uh, one of my favorite pieces is by uh, Kristen Collier, Debt Demands a Body. Um, in that essay, the author writes about her mother taking out fraudulent student loans in her name and then the toll this debt took on her body and psyche. Can you talk a little bit about this piece? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece. It's, it, and it's really confronting a lot of the elements of the way uh, like debt and like the idea of these loans are so normalized in our world yet have such like a, a, a dramatic long-term uh, impact. And in her particular case, it really like impacted her personal health. And, 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 and these are all things like in the sort of course of our lives, like we're told that you're going to do this and you're going to do this and these steps are going to lead you to the things and this is what it is. And ultimately they're selling you on an idea that there's going to be peace and happiness on the on the other end of it and not like not that the thing not the school not this education that you are now taking loans out for uh is you know there the idea is that this education is going to fix your life and not that this education was going to come and be like the greatest sort of like barrier to being able to move past some of those things right uh I, I think it was, and it was one of those things that we understand when we're talking about the idea of precarity, the idea of these insecure classes, that uh, that folks can fall into this that don't necessarily fall into maybe what we would look at as sort of the traditional sort of traps of class, right? We are, in America, we are definitely very conditioned to talking about uh, uh, the, the, the issues around uh, ethnicity and race and then we also like sometimes tend to forget the way other people get trapped in these other sort of like, pockets of precarity as well too and I she did a beautiful job with it Jen makes this like kind of uh, this amazing comment um, in the editor's conversation after about you know how would the whole book be different if education were free in the United States. And I was like, ah, <laughs> um, the entire mm -hmm. volume would be, would be totally different. I mean, my students write about, my students write about that all the time, right? I, I have students who are writing about student debt and 
the way that it affects them. It's just, it's, it is really a constant. Um, also because education is so much more expensive than it was when I was young. I mean, it's, it's insane how much the price has gone up, speaking as someone who's paying for college right now. Oh, I know. I, uh, and I, I think about it like in a way too, like, um, and, and then like just how much, what a better space we would be in and the way resources could be moved in a different way if we were not in some way using this as, you know, a way of like, as a sort of barrier of entry into adulthood. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you could hear like a nationwide breath of relief when Biden started talking about, you know, student, uh, like student debt relief. Um, you know, I, I heard that, that I felt like I could hear that sigh of relief everywhere. I had friends texting me like my whole life is different. Um, and you know, it was like, uh, it's so amazing. And also it could have been, could have been different decades ago. We could have done all of this, um, in a better way. So you mentioned earlier that mental illness was something that you wanted to touch on in this volume. And one of the other essays in here that I really admired was by an incarcerated writer, Sarith Pio, uh, a refugee serving a life sentence who writes about the severe mental illness faced by another incarcerated refugee. You mentioned mental illness was something that you wanted to touch on in this volume and that this essay does this really beautifully. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this essay, which is called The Promised Land. It seems like it would have been a challenge to edit because it's got so much complexity to it. Well, it was definitely one of the last pieces to come in. So I didn't even get a sort of really a uh, a run at being able to edit. I was reading it sort of in it. The the, the rest of the Faribault editors went into it. I do know Sarith, though, real well. Uh, and I, I go back to uh, a very early writing group, a poetry group that I was in with with him, he had experiences um, with uh, the Cambodian Civil War and with when the Khmer Rouge uh, slaughtered, you know, that, an awful, an enormous amount of people, right? It completely changed the country. He, you know, and, he, and he used to write a lot about this, and he wrote a lot of it in, in poetry, right? He was uh, r- really beautiful images, but also very dark, very sad, and he had published his own book of poetry, and, and he had always wanted to write, too. He was always one of the sort of the people that was always involved from the start. Um, I think, like, with him, I, I mean, one thing I speak about, too, is that I think we always tend to try to, like, analyze our own um, mental illnesses or our own sort of, like, uh, instabilities by by looking at other people or, like, measuring them against other people. One thing I think, like... Um, that I had noticed too that was really beautiful is the way Sarith had always um, wanted to create art. He had been working on sort of a volume, a memoir about his experiences uh, growing up that I had seen pieces of. It was very good. I think though like when he really started to come into his own was then he understood how like his story and the way you know he had sort of built a relationship with language was able to then impact other people. Uh, he was always trying to figure out how can I help folks coming into this situation? Because I think truly, as he starts to come in, he's like all of us, there's a lot of confusion. And I think like coming from um, such turbulence and coming from you know your own unique history, sometimes it is really hard to relate and get adjusted to environments like prison especially prison in certain carceral environments and he's somebody i think like i think he started to really like uh like make 
sense out of his own life by being able to interact and do that through dialogue. I remember uh, Toni Morrison saying that's how you really feel, find out how you really feel about things or what you really think is through dialogue. And it was something I've always remembered. And I feel like Sarith in a lot of ways, too, was somebody that he found the people who needed to know what he knew. And it was, I don't know, I, I just was always, I'm always very more impressed by him as a person and the way he's able to to, um, you know, uh, work through some of the, I mean, he's had his own issues and this stuff and, and, and Lord knows that the institutions and the system have not come back to him and, you know, and offered him the sort of help that he needs, right. As a writer, as a person who has experienced such heavy duty things, but yet the things he's given to other people in those places is remarkable. So you've got this group of editors together. They've created this anthology are there plans for another what's this group what what is your group of editors going to do next well i'm out here so i mean i'm they all i'm sure have their own individual projects right everybody that's part of this group has built their own little career so i know that everybody has their own book projects that they would like to to uh um, finally get published i'm sure some of those uh, probably do include some collections. I'm not exactly sure if there'll be a second book along these same lines, but I don't see why not, right? I, I mean, I think they, I think as uh, a collective, they create good work and it's going to be something that's interesting and whatever they decide and whatever the creative vision is will probably be um, certainly interesting and worthy of publication for certain. Well, Zeke, congratulations um, on the book. It's uh, American Precariat out now from Coffee House, and we appreciate you being with us and, and yeah, your time and, and sharing this work with us. And congratulations to you because you've had a big year too, <laughs> so salute. You're one of ours. And really, it's congratulations to all of our people in these places, right? We still have to uplift and carry our folks because those prisons didn't get any better over time. They're worse than they were. And so we, I, I always want to be able to make sure that those points are, are emphasized, that you have wonderful, brilliant human beings that are out here working, right? But you're not going to see it and you're not doing anything publicly. We're not doing anything socially. So We're out here trying to work so that we can make those facilities better places that are more, um, I I guess, like more absorbent to, you know, the creatives and the wonderful things that can happen out of it. So the human beings can be who they should be versus like sort of a, a desolated version of themselves. Well, thank you again. And listeners, along with American Precariat, Parables of Exclusions, of Exclusion, we want, we'll remind you that you can pick up Zeke's memoir, this is where I am. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net. 
where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!